Now please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. Uh, we're to chapter 16 today as we continue looking at the story of Samson, the 12th and the final judge. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 22. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version this morning. Now children, I, I wish I could tell you that all the stories in the Bible uh, were happy ones. But unfortunately, I can't do that. And this morning we have what is a very sad story indeed. And it is the story of Samson and Delilah. It's quite a famous story. And uh, Delilah is synonymous with betrayal and with deceit. And yet at the end of this, we're going to see that uh, it's really all Samson's fault. And so he can't really blame Delilah for what happens here. But uh, let's listen what happens in the life of this great judge. And you'll remember uh, the passage we let, read last week ended with in, in chapter 15, and he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So uh, Samson has served faithfully as a judge and leader of his people. And uh, now this is occurring uh, toward the end of his life. Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying, in the morning when it's daylight, we will kill him. And Samson lay low till midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two gate posts pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like other men. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. So he said to her, If they bind me securely, with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten and the loom and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. 
But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death that he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. Then she lulled him to sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Then the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters, and he became a grinder in the prison. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. There ends the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to his people. Well, Jesus said famously in the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. It is a fundamental principle that you are not able to effectively serve two masters. Uh, Jesus here speaks specifically about trying to serve God and money. But this principle applies to all kinds of things that we might want to try to serve equally with God. We cannot serve God and our work, or God and our family, or God and our friends, or God and our hobbies. Because when push comes to shove, you will have to choose what your highest allegiance is to. That always happens uh, at some point. And here we see the story of God's servant, Samson, being pushed into this kind of a choice, this inevitable crash, deciding if he's going to love God and serve him, or if he's going to love uh, his Philistine um, uh, girlfriend. And uh, we see here it's a spectacular crash when this inevitable uh, conflict happens. And there's a warning here for us, but there's also a tremendous note of encouragement because we see that although Samson falls spectacularly, God does not abandon him. God stays with him. And that's the message that God has for you this morning from this passage. Beware the temptation of trying to serve God with divided loyalties, but at the same time, take heart that God will never abandon his true children, even when they fall. And that's written down for you in the outline that you may want to use to follow along with this morning. Children, I'd have you draw a picture of Samson and Delilah and maybe something about what happens to Samson's hair. 
Uh, you did a very nice job last week drawing pictures of Samson and the jawbone. And I should have told Alejandra, they did a wonderful job drawing pictures of Alejandra up here joining the church. Uh, so uh, you children who gave those to me, I've given them back to your parents. You may want to take them and show Alejandra. She will be very impressed with your pictures of her as well. Well, the first thing I want us to see as we look through this passage is you cannot serve God and your own sin. This is the issue of divided loyalties in verses 1 to 3. Now, I read for you, again, reminding you of how chapter 15 ended. With Samson, finally, it was a sort of a torturous process, but God worked in his life to bring him to the point where he embraced his calling. He took on the role of a judge, and it says he faithfully judged Israel then for 20 years during the time of the Philistines. And by all rights, the story of Samson should have ended there. If we were keeping consistent with all the other judges in this book, um, the judge judges for a certain period of time, then the judge dies, then the judge is given an honorable burial. That's what happened to every single judge prior to Samson. Samson was very unique, though, as we've seen. He was unique in his calling and ministry. Uh, Gordon Ketty speaking about this. This cross-reference is in your uh, outline, this, uh, this quotation. Samson was raised up by God to punish the oppressors and deliver the oppressed people of God. He was therefore strengthened by the Lord that so that he could do it by himself what ordinarily would have required the whole nation. And we did say that's unique. Samson operated alone. He never had an army helping him. He never had anybody fighting with him. And so sadly, this should have been the end and he should have died and been given an honorable burial. But Samson doesn't die and exit the scene gracefully. He goes out like an exploding rocket and it's sad how this happens we see in verses one to three sort of a transition into the story of Samson and Delilah and in verse one it tells us he goes down to Gaza so Gaza is one of the five major Philistine cities it's on the coast on the Mediterranean Sea it's quite a distance uh, I think what this indicates is Samson at this point as the judge and, and leader in Israel, is able to travel freely. He's not really afraid uh, to be traveling around. Uh, perhaps he presumes somewhat on uh, the power that God's given him. But we see him using his freedom uh, actually in a sinful way. He abuses it. He says he goes down and sees a harlot there in Gaza and goes in and spends the night with her. So he spends the night with a woman who's not his wife. And uh, make no mistake about it, this is a serious sin on his part. And it puts him in danger's way. Verse 2 tells us that when they learn he's there, they shut up the city gates. They decide, well, he can't escape at night while he's locked in here. Then we will deal with him in the morning. It's our chance to kill our enemy and the leader of the Israelites. And we don't know exactly what happens here. Perhaps he senses something is going on, but verse 3 tells us he gets up in the middle of the night, probably when the guard has finally gone to sleep. He says, uh, the locked gate is no problem for me. He goes right up to the gate, and he rips it out of the ground and out of the wall, and then carries it uh, some miles away, actually, up a hill facing Hebron, and there it sort of displays it. And this scene is really... Um, 
fraught and, and full of symbolism because Hebron at this time would have been a leading city in Judah. This is where David first establishes his capital. So it's an important city. And the point really is here Samson is uh, displaying his power against the enemy by tearing out the gate, right? The city gate would represent their defenses, their protection. It's also where, well, where the elders would meet to do business. So it's an open defiance against the Philistines. And he sort of takes it up and offers it uh, and puts it on display so that Israel can see uh, what he's done here. And so it's an, it's a, it's an act of uh, defiance against the Philistines, an act of victory and humiliation against the Philistines and victory for uh, Israel. And the point that the narrative is making here is that you have this very conflicted man who at the same time is engaging in his lust, is, is trying to love uh, at least aspects of the Philistines, but still clearly a servant of God, seeking to work on God's behalf and lead God's people against their enemy. And so this is what makes him a complicated character. Uh, one, one of the fascinating things I think about uh, Donald Trump is that he engenders such extreme responses and I know I'm taking a risk even mentioning his name in this service, right? Because some of you are having visceral responses of one kind or another. And this is what's so strange about it, because on one hand, um, people view everything he does as evil. This is evil incarnate, and so therefore everything he does is evil. He can't possibly do anything good. And on the other hand, there are people who see him as sort of a modern-day hero. He can never do anything wrong. Uh, it's impossible for him to do anything wrong. And decidedly, the truth is in the middle of those two extremes. I'm not going to argue for where it is exactly, but it's in the middle of those two extremes. And what's interesting is when you read the commentators trying to understand Samson, there's often a similar effect where some commentators, and these would be in the minority today for sure, would sort of see everything Samson does as good. Somehow, he's playing this 4D chess, you know, and uh, we can't see it, but he's somehow scheming, and this is all part of the, uh, this, his plan. Okay, and then on the other hand, everything he's doing is self-motivated, it's sinful, it's rebellious, and through and through, uh, he's not obeying God. And, and again, the truth is somewhere in the middle. He is a legitimate servant of God. The, the, the scripture establishes that, and God uses him. But at the same time, he is a man with a weakness. And what we're being shown here in this little transition part is what his weakness is. Uh, children, I know you know the superheroes way better than I do. I can't keep any of them straight, especially because they've been multiplying by, by, like, by crazy uh, in the recent years. But I do know that most superheroes have a weakness, uh, whether it's kryptonite or uh, their own pride or whatever it is, uh, they have some kind of a weakness. And what we're being shown here is Samson's fundamental weakness. His fundamental weakness is that he is a man of mixed allegiances. He's trying, on the one hand, to serve God, and in, in this little portion, serve God by day, love Philistia by night. And this is exactly the kind of double-mindedness that we were talking about with the children earlier. The very first commandment, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, 
out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. God says, I'm your God. I've saved you. How do you live as one of my people? You have no other gods before me. You love God most of all. And uh, you cannot divide your loyalties. You cannot successfully be married to multiple spouses. You cannot uh, simultaneously play on two opposing sports teams. And you cannot serve God and your own sin, no matter what that sin is. That's our first point. Secondly, we see here, don't underestimate sin's power to deceive and blind you. So now we transition into the story of Delilah. And we see here in verses 4 to 14 this, uh, this game that Samson ends up playing with her. It tells us in verse 4 that he, he loved this woman in the valley of Sorek. Uh, her name is a, a bit of a mystery. It sort of seems like it might have some allusions to the night. Uh, it's a Semitic name. It's a Jewish name, but uh, commentators feel like she must have been uh, a Philistine woman. And uh, she's attracted to Samson. He's attracted to her. We don't know what the relationship was like, but the relationship was there. It's inappropriate. And then we're told in verse 5 that the lords of the Philistines, so that would be the five leaders of these five major cities, they go to exploit this relationship for their own purposes. Now, we read earlier in the story of Samson that uh, the men of Temna used the stick uh, to get uh, his wife, Samson's wife, to do their bidding. They threatened to burn her. Here, it's the carrot approach. There's no threat. There's, we're going to give you each, uh, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So 5,500 pieces of silver, which one commentator estimates could have been the equivalent of around $15 million in buying power uh, in, in that day and age. So we don't know exactly, but it's an enormous amount of money. And uh, so they're going to buy her off. And uh, in verse 6, she goes to Samson and starts asking, where does your great strength lie and how may I bind you? And clearly she has accepted the offer of the Philistine lords and is going to do their bidding. So she asks him what the source of his strength is. And he tells her in verse 7 a fairly ridiculous story about fresh bowstrings. So you take the sinews off the animals and they haven't uh, dried yet and you wrap those around. And so she tries it out. She tests the theory. And Samson gets up and breaks those off. And um, these Philistine soldiers who are hiding nearby, they slink off. And so this basic pattern is repeated uh, two more times in verses 10 to 14. And each time, Samson gives some fantastic story in new ropes or uh, uh, weave my hair into the, into the uh, weaver's beam and, uh, and this will make me weak. And so we, we see this is, this is playing out. Now, when you read the story, your response is, how can anyone be this stupid, right? I mean, that's, that's our natural response. We, 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 he's got her asking these very pointed questions. Then she actually tries the theory out. And each time there are Philistine soldiers hidden nearby, somewhere close at hand, Uh, And he seems to be oblivious of all of this. But understand that this is the author's intent. This is being portrayed to you uh, uh, with with the benefit of 2020 hindsight so that to the reader, your response is, this is so obvious. How did he not see this coming? But the reality is he didn't see it coming. 
And, and you have to think for yourself, what was the nature of their relationship? How was he so swayed by this woman? But he was blind to the deceptive power of sin. And rather than say to yourself, how can this guy be this stupid? The point is for you to say, how is it that I am also sometimes this stupid? In my inability to see sin and temptation around me in my own life. Samson here is being portrayed sort of like the fool in Proverbs. And I've got a lengthy quote from Proverbs 7 in your outline. And it describes a very similar situation. It says, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. Now, therefore, listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by her were strong men. Right? To the outside observer, it's obvious, but to the person in the midst of the temptation, uh, it seems like nothing is going on. And this can be true for you and for me as well. Our battles with lust or anger, impatience, fear, worry, lack of contentment, whatever it is, whatever form our idolatry takes, we must remember that the devil is cunning. And he lays the snares, as one of my friends said, he knows the roads that you travel on. And it's not as if the devil is trying to get you to travel down some road you never travel on and then set the trap there. He's setting the trap on the road that you already travel on, where you're already walking. And for Samson, this issue of Philistine women was the place where it was easy to set the trap. This is why Jesus tells you to pray, lead us not into, into temptation. Uh, we need to be praying for protection from temptation. And this is why we also need trusted Christian friends. Because who better to tell you you're being an idiot like Samson when that's needed. And we all need a person in our life who will say that to us in love right, when we seem to be walking blindly into a trap as this man was. So don't underestimate sin's power to deceive and blind you. Thirdly, we see here that testing God's boundaries is a dangerous game to play. So as Samson works through these various ruses where he's telling her about the fresh sinews or the new ropes or weaving his hair into the loom, he's treating this all like a game. Now you have to understand, the Philistines think that the source of his great strength is some kind of magic power. Uh, Again, quoting from one of the commentators, he said, Samson must have been a relatively ordinary-looking man in size and weight. And why is that? Because he's saying, why would you pay someone millions of dollars to find out the secret strength of a man who had, let's say, 50-inch biceps? Right? You don't need to pay for that. 
it's obvious why he is, where his strength comes from. So the only way any of this makes sense is if Samson doesn't appear to be some giant hulk of a man and that it's clear that he has supernatural powers that are given to him. So the Philistines think, well, there's, there's some trick to this and we need to figure out what the trick is. And this is why it's so easy for him to suggest these different ridiculous things and they try them all. Because for, for all they know, that this could be the secret. But what you see, though, is a progression that Samson, even as he treats this as a game, is moving closer to what's actually an important issue. And so he starts with the ropes, but then he moves on to his hair. And, uh, and it feels like uh, he's inching ever closer uh, to what's really at issue. And so then finally... In verse 17, it says he tells her all his heart. He entrusts this woman, completely untrustworthy, with uh, the, the essence of his calling and, and this critical information about himself. And this is the danger of sin and of toying with sin, is it draws us along and it makes us feel like we can get away with it and we can play with it and we can get right up to the edge and we know the limits and this is what happens to him. He gets pulled right across the boundary. Again, quoting from Proverbs, this time chapter 6, verses 26 to 29. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? And of course, the answer to those rhetorical questions is no. You play with fire and you will get burned eventually at some point. And so realize here, in Gaza, Samuel, or Samuel Samson seemed to get away with it. Right? He went down to Gaza, he spent the night there, he just gets up and rips the gates off and walks out. So it seems like he gets away with it. And so then he's going to take up with this woman, Delilah. And it seems like he's getting away with it there, too, as he prolongs this relationship, even as he plays this little game with her. But you see how he sets him up, he sets himself up for disaster as he continues to walk this line and to test the boundaries. And, and this is a helpful reminder to us, right? Christian Couples says we're committed uh, to purity in our relationship. Uh, but, but then we're going to spend time alone in her apartment. And, uh, you know, we'll be fine. Uh, you, have a, you have trouble with what you look at on the Internet. And, and yet you put your computer in a place where nobody can observe you, and, and, where, and then you go on your computer at night when there's no one around. Um, you have a shopping addiction. Right? You, you don't get rid of your, you keep your credit cards, all of them active. You find yourself uh, surfing on the internet every evening. And we can go on and on about the, the types of things that are temptations to us, and we think we can keep playing around with them. And it's, it's a deadly, deadly game that we're playing. And Samson shows us that. Fourthly, we also see here that loyalty to God is ultimately a matter of the heart. So Delilah is sure now that Samson has confided in her. In verse 18, so she calls for the lords of the Philistines, come one more time, 
and this time bring your money. Now she's absolutely sure that she's figured it out. So she lulls him to sleep and then she calls for a man to come save off, shave off the locks of his head. And we don't know, maybe she's still not 100% sure because she doesn't cut his hair herself. Children, this is a good trivia question when they ask you who shaved Samson's head. The answer is not Delilah. It's this unnamed Philistine who comes in and cuts his hair. And, and, and so then we see the result. In verse 20, she says, the Philistines are upon you. And he awakes from his sleep and he says, I'll go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Very sad verse indeed. God had left him and he didn't even know it at this time. And here's where I think Christians and sometimes fall into the same magical thinking as the Philistines. Because we start to believe that, well, the, the power was in his hair. And so when the hair was cut off, he lost his power. But that's not what's going on. Now, recognize, he says something really uh, sort of surprising maybe to us, but confirming in verse 17. Because when he told her his heart, he said, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. So we, it seemed like he had ignored this calling, but this confirms he knew what his calling was from his earliest days. And he knew he'd been set apart as one who would serve God as a, as, as a Nazarite throughout his life. And the key elements of being a Nazarite were, so you're, you're committing yourself to serving God in a comprehensive way for a particular task or for a particular period of time. His situation was unusual because it was for his whole life. You are strictly forbidden to, have, uh, a, a, to be around dead bodies or to take in any fruit of the vine or thirdly, to cut your hair. And despite knowing this, right, we're told Samson ate honey out of a dead carcass, right? He, he totally ignored that aspect of being a Nazarite. Furthermore, and we didn't stress this before, but when he hosted that huge party for his wedding, the, it, it clearly involved drinking. I mean, the word that's translated feast in our, in our translations is actually drinking party. So he's not only engaged in drinking, he's hosting the big party. So he's not followed the dictates of this vow at all. And the only one left was his hair. But recognize the hair was an outward symbol of the actual consecration. And so when a Nazarite got to the end of the time of consecration, they would cut their hair. And that was a symbol that the time of consecration was over. I put in your outline Acts chapter 18. Paul, this talks about the Apostle Paul. Paul remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. And he had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. So at the fulfillment of the vow, his hair is cut off. It's actually given as a sacrifice. So the cutting of Samson's hair is, is basically the ending of his consecration. And that is why the power left him. It's not because there's anything magical about his hair itself. As Matthew Henry says, his consecration to God was to be his strength. 
For he was to be strengthened according to the glorious power of that spirit which wrought in him mightily. So he has his strength by promise, by God's work, not by nature, not because he's hit the weight room so much. It's because God has blessed him. One of the commentators goes so far as to say, Samson wanted to have his hair cut off. The the reason why he goes along with this is he didn't want He didn't want this job anymore. He was tired of this. He he wanted out. And I'm not sure I agree with that just because the way this ends is is really terrible. So if if that was in his mind, he definitely didn't think this is how it was going to end for him. He actually seems surprised that he's lost his strength. And what the author is really highlighting for us here is that the issue is Samson's heart. He, he comes to the place where he has to decide, am I going to please this woman or God the most? And he chooses the woman. This inevitable conflict when we try to have it both ways, when we try to serve God and love the world. My friends, we had a man in our congregation preach for us a couple of years ago who I would call mighty in the spirit and the scriptures. And he was in the process of becoming a minister in our denomination. And one of the churches that was considering him had some anonymous woman post on their website, this man is not who you think he is. And further investigation revealed that he was living a double life. He, he could preach the gospel powerfully and effectively. But on the side, he was having illicit relationships. He was engaged in the drug culture. And this double life all came out, and you saw this, this incredible crash. And, and this is the challenge that we all face Am I going to serve God wholeheartedly or am I going to try to live this double life where I'm a Christian by day and I'm something else by night? And it's possible to get away with that for some time. But inevitably, a crisis comes and we see what happens. Remember Jesus, when he was tempted, he says... Uh, And the final temptation to the devil, away from you with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That's at the heart of it. We love and serve God above all other things. And your ability to withstand temptation and to serve God depends upon your heart, your commitment to love God above all else. Loyalty to God is a matter of the heart. And then finally we see here that we should take heart because God does not abandon his true children. Verse 21 surely has to be one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. This great defender of God's people is taken back to the city where he tore out the gates he's now blind he'll never see again children when you lose an eye you cannot bring it back 
he will never see again. He's chained up in the prison and he's given a hand mill to grind flour, which would have been considered uh, women's work in those days and would have been just there to add to his humiliation. From an outward perspective, this man has been utterly forsaken and brought as low as he could be brought. And yet, our passage ends in verse 22 with a significant note of hope. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaven. If you go look at number six, it tells you how the Nazarite vow worked. And if a person who had taken the vow became unclean, exposed to a dead body, or had had, had, uh, accidentally uh, drunk the fruit of the vine or something like that, the process was to then shave your head and to start the period of consecration all over again. It became a renewal of the vow. And so what we're being shown here, the author is reminding us that this story is not yet over. And this is really important to understand that despite the fact that Samson is in this situation because of his bad decisions, God does not abandon him. There are real and terrible consequences to his sin. And he's experiencing them. But he is a genuine child of God. And if you are a genuine child of God, the Lord will not abandon you, even if you fall spectacularly. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God will not abandon Samson, and that's the wonderful hope that we have. This, This man that I spoke of who preached in our congregation, if he is a genuine believer, I don't know his heart. Maybe he was a hypocrite all the time. But if he is a genuine believer, child of God, then he's not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ, even with what he's done, which is spectacularly bad. He's not beyond the reach of Jesus Christ. And this is because Jesus Christ is the one true perfect judge who came into the world never double-minded, never playing away around with sin, perfectly sinless and faithful, never blinded, never deceived, never wavering in the least. And recognize as bad as Samson's situation here is at the end of this story, this is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus Christ suffered in Samson's place and in your place if you're a believer. He went to the cross Samson had to know in that prison that at least he had brought this all on himself. Jesus went to the cross knowing he was innocent, completely sinless, carrying the sins of others and dealing not only with physical suffering but with the anguish of God's wrath being poured out upon him for all God's people. Jesus suffered in that way even though he was innocent so that Samson would be spared the wrath of God, so that you, if you are a genuine child of God, trusting in Jesus Christ, would also be spared the wrath of God. 
Come to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Trust in him. Avoid the tragedy of ignoring the Lord. And in his strength, seek his help to have a single mind, to put away uh, our playing around with sin, to seek his help in seeing clearly the temptations that are around us, and then following after him as he enables us. If you're God's child, even if you've fallen, and even if it's been spectacular, come to him in faith and repentance, and he promises to work in your life. So this is our message this morning. Beware the temptation of trying to serve God with divided loyalties, but take heart that God will never abandon his true children through Jesus Christ, even when they fall. Let's pray and we'll ask for his mercy. Heavenly Father, we confess that this is a painful story to read about. A man who was given such gifts and abilities, who knew what his calling was, who had been used by you in incredible ways, and yet struggled not to love the things in the world. And not to have his loyalties divided. And Lord, we thank you for showing us that uh, if we have lives that are like this, uh, we will inevitably uh, crash, uh, that we cannot maintain uh, other loves on the level of our love for you. And I pray right now that you would help each one of us as we think about what in our own lives uh, might be a danger to us and that you would help us to put these things in perspective, to love anything we love in the world, to love it for your sake, and to love you most of all. We pray for your help, Lord, that we would not be deceived by our sin, that we not, would not play games with our sin, but that we might be able to serve you uh, wholeheartedly, because our Lord Jesus Christ uh, did so in our place. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to apply these things, even in uh, these coming days, uh, that each one of us would know your Spirit's work in our life. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now let's sing back our praise to the Lord from Psalm 33. We're going to sing Psalm 33, Selection C. In the first part of this psalm, uh, we give thanks to the Lord for his great work in creation and in maintaining the world, ruling over the nations. Uh, but then you see uh, in stanza eight, the second half of that, the king is not saved by the strength of his army. The soldier as well should not trust in his own might. The strength of a horse does not make rescue certain. A horse is a false hope for winning the fight. The whole point is we are not to trust in our gifting or in our abilities, but only in the Lord. And that's how the, this portion of the psalm ends. Behold, the Lord's eye is upon all who trust in him. It is a matter of our heart that we would love him as we should. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 33 seat.